All right, y'all. Uh, so hopefully our brains are working a little bit better than they were on um, Wednesday. Well, they weren't working on Wednesday, it appears. Not just for y'all, but for everybody. Even Father Josh was talking about that. Uh, anyhow, we are moving on now. We're almost done with beginning of life issues just next week, and then we'll close that out. So it'll be time for another homily, which is going to be exciting for y'all. Um for those who are interested, if y'all, I know we, we hadn't had a biology, a bioethics discussion over beer in a while, and I know many of you may not be drinking beer, so you could bring your LaCroix, uh, but on, we can watch the movie on Sunday night at 7. If people would like to sit and have a beer on Saturday, maybe at about 8 around the pool, p.m., not a.m., uh, no beer that early in the morning, uh, just, I'll be there. Anybody interested in that on Saturday? Maybe. All right, maybe. If they're there, good. If not, I'll figure something else to do. So, uh, just letting y'all know that. I know it's a busy weekend. Um, what I want to do today is talk specifically about pregnancy issues. I think I told you I changed some of the readings up because the ones in that NCBC book were kind of complicated, uh, but I forgot to post just the section on the Phoenix case, but some of you may have read it already because it was in that original article. If not, we're gonna talk about it today. So don't worry, you won't be tested on it uh, if our little nerd die number two uh, rolls on an even. Um, <clears throat> really, as I said last week, uh, in my experience as a priest, I have faced many more people with difficulties with pregnancy. We're not talking about miscarriage or the loss of a child or neonatal stuff. We'll talk about that next week. But just some of these ethical decisions that are, are women face in pregnancy, uh, particularly these issues of vital conflicts when it could be either the life of the child or the life of the mother. I want to spend some time talking about those today. What are the, the basic ethical principles? Well, you're going to say a number of things. One, of course, is that risk-benefits analysis is going to guide, um, that we do and we guide by prudence, of course. The principle of double effect, as we are going to see, will guide some decisions. Um, and the ERDs are clear. Number 47, operations treatments and medications that have as their direct purpose the cure of a proportionately serious pathological condition of a pregnant woman permitted when they cannot be safely postponed until the unborn child is viable, even if they will result in the death of the unborn child. So you're talking about potentially a woman with cancer uh, who needs to have some type of radiation treatment or chemotherapy uh, and it's, it's a super impending thing. It may lead to the death of a child. These things and the whole use of principle of double effect can be acceptable. This ERD doesn't talk about sort of vital conflicts. Uh, I mean, in a certain sense it does. It's the, the death, of the, the danger of the mother. Uh, we're going to use some other principles to see or uh, focus on when the child is sick or the child is posing threat to the mother. Um, th this is all so, I mean, th these issues of pregnancy uh, and, and these vital conflicts especially are true outside of the woman having cancer or some condition like that where a medicine might lead to the death of the child <clears throat> are going to be in high-risk pregnancies. Um, again, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an OB, but from what I've read, high-risk cases such as preeclampsia P-R-E-E-C-L-A-M-P-S-I-A, which is some type of high blood pressure in a woman uh, whenever she is pregnant. Placental issues, which we will get to. Um, and, and, you know, will often lead a mom to be on bed rest for a long part of the pregnancy. I've encountered that before because the woman has these different conditions towards the end of her pregnancy. She just basically has to be in bed. It's an inconvenience, of course, but it's not something that would warrant the death of the child. In so many cases, whenever the vital conflict of the woman and the child come in, 
many will claim that abortion is the easiest path. But of course, we know we never directly abort. The child is not an aggressor. Um, and this secular mentality, I think, certainly comes from that secular ethics where we question the moral status of a fetus. And we weigh that, which is in question to the undisputable autonomy of the mother. Um, there are other factors that need to be uh, integrated here. We could talk about the principle of beneficence. Well, who are we going to do good for? Are we going to do um, good for the mom? Or are we doing it for the child? What about non-malfeasance? Well, if it's non-malfeasance, should we really be trying to kill the child? I, I think we would say that is not something that would be acceptable even under those conditions. And then finally, what about the decision of the doctor? Um, that's one of the things we're going to really talk about next time. You know, how do we? How does the the woman um, deal with and and talk to the woman? And and even though he knows better, quite often to make the proper decision moving forward, uh, particularly whenever the woman may want something which is considered unethical, and the doctor, of course is a Catholic and is not going to be able to accept that. So all, all these things kind of, we keep these basic principles, which I think by now we should know what they are. Um, let's look at some specific issues. The first one, I mean, should be pretty easy to figure out. Let's say that the child has some type of, um, I don't know, D disease or some type of issue and the child is in utero, in the womb, um, is it possible to do a surgery in the womb? Let's say the child has a tumor. We have techniques where you can operate on the child in utero. Would that be something permissible? Yes. yes. Basic health benefits, uh, risk benefits analysis, and of course you'd want to get the approval of the mom, uh, which makes a lot of sense, I hope, um, if they're gonna be operating her body. That is simple. One of the issues that you're going to hear about the most, or you've heard about, and we've already discussed, particularly when it comes to applying the principle of double, double, effect, double effects, it is ectopic pregnancies, which means Ectopic is outside of the normal place. This is where a child is implanted after, you know, there's fertilization occurs, it's going down the fallopian tube, and at some point it is implanted outside of the uterus in the normal place. 90% of the times it appears that it will implant in the fallopian tube which is also called a tubal pregnancy. On my time as a priest, I've maybe gotten calls about two or three of these. They are, or at least in my experience, I haven't gotten a lot of calls. The studies that I did online show about one in a hundred pregnancies uh, are ectopic. So it's about 1%. Um, you would think that I'd hear a lot more about it. The truth is though, from what I also understand, they often resolve themselves. You may not even know that the child is there and it just kind of often resolves itself. However, if it does not resolve itself in these cases, um, it can lead to serious issues. Why would it lead to serious issues? Yeah, boop, and there's massive internal hemorrhaging. It, it would not be good. It, it leads to massive internal bleeding, and potentially the death of the mother. Um, I've also, the readings that I did, about less than 50 people in the U.S. die from it each year. Less than 50 people die from it each year. So it's something that either is not, doesn't happen very often or is um, dealt with. However, sometimes it potentially could not be dealt with in the proper way. So ERD 48, after ERD 47, talks about, let's say the life of the mother is, is in danger, 
What about the life of the child and the life of the mother? So 48 says, in case of extrauterine pregnancy, ectopic pregnancy, no intervention is morally illicit, which constitutes a direct abortion, which should make sense. Although, you know, one of the, the questions is, what exactly is a direct abortion? Um, when it comes, if you would have read the whole article on vital conflicts, you know, there are people are saying, well, this is a direct abortion, this is not a direct abortion. Uh, that's more of a discussion of exactly what the object of the act is, which we're not going to necessarily get into today. <clears throat> the two types that seem to be the most common and clearly unacceptable, or for most people, clearly unacceptable, uh, is methotrexate, which is a drug that basically aborts the child. Um, however, there was some questioning that I read of whether or not it acts on the placenta or the child itself, which is a discussion we're going to get into a little bit later about what is the role of the placenta as an organ. And then salpingostomy, S-A-L-P-I-N-G-O-S-T-O-M-Y, where they basically cut the fallopian tube where the child is and remove the child. Of course, if the child is not viable, um, I'm sure there may be some place where they directly kill the child, um, or maybe they just sit there to leave it to die. Um, this would be, by most things that I've read from Catholic bioethicists, unacceptable. Unacceptable. Yes? Correct, yes. Which, I, isn't the, the, which is not yet the placenta. Okay, that's... So that debate's a different debate, because one is, one is how essentially a part of the embryo it is, and the trophoblast is absolutely from the embryo only, and not from the mother. Correct. The placenta, so. That's what, that's what my, I didn't, I didn't add that, because the placenta, the trophoblast will grow with it. It depends on where, we know where the, the placenta comes from, but the trophoblast is that, I guess what you call it, the... But that happens in the fallopian Yeah, but... The, Yeah, before it develops into the whole placenta. Um, we'd have to probably watch a video on the development of the placenta. Uh, yes. This gets into like the question of the placenta, is it an organ of the mother or the child? But the distinction here would be that the trophoblast is clear an organ of the child before it becomes a placenta. Uh, that's um, a good distinction. Thank you for making that. Um, but either of those are not going to be considered acceptable. Yes? Just a clarification. Um, Salpingectomy and salpingostomy? Yeah, gostomy is the, is the cutting of the tube to basically remove or act directly on the child. Salpingectomy, which is what we're going to talk about next, S-A-L-P-I-N-G-E-C-T-O-M-Y. Salvagectomy is the surgical removal of a part or all of the fallopian tube in the dangerous situation where the newly conceived embryo implants on the tube rather than the uterus. And the moral reasoning relies on the ethical principle of double effect. <clears throat> so how would you apply double effect here? Mm -hmm. the, your object is to remove the diseased organ that will cause the, the mother's uh, life to be in danger. The, or not the disease, the affected, the affected organ, yeah. yeah. The, the foreseen but unintended consequence being that the child will die. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Dr. Zeldin appears to disagree with this. Let's say the child is a disease. Well, the, it has to be according to this, this no, breakdown. It's, it's the bond that's a disease. According to the article, so, so, bond that's so just remove the bond. Why can't I do that? So you're, you're in a minority position. Okay, so I don't see how. How do you remove the bond? You literally use a scalpel. 
Uh, this is where the, these types of distinctions, as not a doctor, is very hard for me to say. Correct that. Which I guess in a certain sense you could also do if you did a salamagostomy, just remove the, the 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 embryo and then implant it in the uterus too. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Well, you can cut maybe on the side of it. I, again, I, I don't know the. It's not necessarily that you can see, but it's directly pulling the, the embryo out. So the question is now, that's the question, right? It's how much are we, is it, is it an attack to move it? Well, probably not. I don't know. That's, that's but you're acting, with salamagostomy, it appears you're acting directly on the embryo yeah. as opposed to the salamagectomy. You're acting on the fallopian tube in which the embryo is implanted. One, one clarification which helps there is that were somehow by some miracle or problem in science, if as you were removing the fallopian tube, the, the embryo detached and moved and then reattached, you still achieved the initial goal that you were shooting for, which mm. is removing the, the fallopian tube section, whereas in the uh, gustomy, Part of that necessarily is that you have to go after the uh, the embryo itself. You have mm -hmm. to make that that incision. The, the embryo becomes a part of it instead of just kind of an accidental. Yeah, know. but that's your that's your, your well. That's the the question about what the object is. And so, like, are you're going, is you're, you're acting directly on. What is your intention towards the embryo? I mean, it's not to save it. Yeah. Well, whereas in the, in the first one, the again, I'm just harping on the same point. Is that it's only accidental or foreseeable that, that the death occurs mm -hmm. because your your whole point is going after the tube. Correct, yes. Nothing to do with the embryo. It's whether or not it's even there. It doesn't even matter. You're going after the tube itself. You're right. I mean, in a certain sense, well, you, it does matter because otherwise you wouldn't be you wouldn't be cutting on women's fallopian tubes without it. I mean, this is just a throw-out question, but is, do we have the technology where we can take out fallopian tube and then freeze the embryo so it doesn't die instead of throwing it in the trash or well, that brings back the issue. I mean, can you can you do that? that if you can do that, then can you do it with the other, the other uh, with IVF? IVF we were talking about too. I mean, can I kind of throw something out there that the whole point of double effect is that intentionality is impossible to really meter because it's not an objective thing; it's an internal thing. And so, double effect says we shape the only thing we can control, which is the object of the act, such that there can be no contamination of intent inside the act. So all these crazy, all of these crazy gymnastics of we're going to cut the tube and not touch the baby is only because there is no way of, of you can declare your intent, but there's no way of shaping intent because of object and intent being reciprocally related. You have to do all sorts of things to make sure in the in the soul of the actor there is no contamination of ill will or vice. So some of these things that seem like grand, like acrobatics is actually they're only there because we cannot have good intent unless we act objectively well and it's really hard to do so there's my point is there's sometimes there is a call for some some not extremism but some abundance of care in these in these regards that's that's the whole logic on double well, I, I don't want to go down a spiritual rabbit hole in this because we got a lot to cover and and, and I'm going to shut it down for now because it's a valid point. We can discuss it later because there's a lot to cover that I want to get to. In general, even though there may be, a, we, we see this distinction, this argument, it's good. Our brains are working this morning. In general, most Catholic bioethicists will say that according to the principle of double effect, that salamangectomy is going to be acceptable. We can take our discussions about that a little bit later on because we need to move on to a few other things, specifically other types of of vital conflicts and early induction of labor. One thing that I wanted to bring up and is something to consider, which I've heard before, are about C-sections, cesarean section. 
where basically a surgical incision is made on the abdomen of the uterus and the child is removed. Often done when there is a concern for the life uh, of the child or of the mother, that if somehow a, a, a normal vaginal birth would be traumatic. In the United States in 2021, 32.1% of live births were cesarean sections. Um, so it is a fairly significant um, sec uh, issue or practice. The ethical questions come in when the question of elective C-sections. What if it is not a situation where uh, the woman needs one? Can she choose to, or could the doctor choose to have one? What if the doctor thinks it's a good idea because it's the health of the mother or the child, or the woman refuses it? Can the doctor then say, hey, can he override the woman's decision? The one thing that I had heard about and I did some research on, and then I'll tell you the response from my OB friend. Um, the argument is that there, there why do you, what the argument is that there are more C-sections today that we've seen a significant increase in the past 20 years. Why would you think that would be the case? Some would argue. <laughs> This is true, the elective C-sections where oh, I guess it could a woman choose if the doctor want to. Some will argue, and I'm not saying this is the case, that doctors get paid more. Uh, the insurance will reimburse the doctor more for a C-section than for a live birth. Yes? Yeah. Uh, my doctor said that, that he says he's hurt. He, he hasn't heard too much about the debate, but he says there is significant convenience in a section versus waiting for natural deliveries. Uh, basically, because if you got to go to labor for for 20 hours or something, just let's just uh, cut me open and take the baby out. Let's just do it. Uh, now, he did say that many hospitals have requirements for a section on a baby that is less than 39 weeks there must be a medical indication. So you can't just do as many elective C-sections as before. And so it's cut down on the rate in most states. Interestingly though, which is again, we're not gonna get into this full debate here, the highest, what, what states have the highest C-section rates? No, no, the poorer states do, the poorer states. Uh, it is, so there, there's something about socioeconomics that potentially do play into this. Uh, now, it could be because, again, I'm not saying I know the, the reason for this, is because in the poor demographics, often poorer health, often more complications in pregnancies, which could lead to the need for more C-sections. But that's a, that's a, a part of discussion um, that could be had at another time. We could talk about that over, over beers. The next one is the one that is made a big deal of in the chapter in uh, the NCBC book, Healthcare Ethics, is the early induction of labor, where before the child is declared viable, that there is a vital conflict between the child and the mother, and then therefore the early induction of labor. So ERD 49 says for a proportionate reason, labor may be induced after the, fetal is after the fetus is viable. Well, okay, 
we make that proportionate, proportionate reason. The child is viable, but still may have to be in, like NICU for a while, may have to be on some type of uh, incubator. The question of viability of a fetus, in most developed countries, average age for viability is 23 weeks. So you may be in a less than developed country, uh, you know, a developing country, a third world country, and that, that, that's going to change a little bit because of the age of viability. The real issue, though, comes <clears throat> with the induction of labor before viability. All right, that's the thing. Before that child's viable, 11 weeks, 20 weeks, whatever, uh, which means if you induce labor early, <clears throat> potentially to save the mother or to help the health of the mother, that child's going to die. Now, granted, maybe, in, maybe we have artificial wombs one day, the child won't die. But the point is the child's going to die. So the NCBC gives its ethical analysis here. And if you saw that, you, you, you read, I'm going to basically go over it. Any act that directly causes or hastens the death of the child is forbidden. So again, labor is not necessarily a direct abortion, but you are performing an act by inducing labor where you know that child is not going to survive. Early induction before viability can occasionally be justified in very grave circumstances. However, which of course the doctor and the mother and the factor people there are going to have to have some say in this. However, the four uh, principles of double effect must be used. So once again, we go back to double effect. So first of all, the act itself constitutes a good or is morally neutral. That is, an early induction is performed to directly treat a very serious threat to the mother's life, like to expel infected membranes. So you're, you're, the act itself is not evil. You're inducing labor. You're not directly trying to, to harm the woman or the baby. The good effect, treating the pathology of the mother is intended. And the bad effect, the death of the baby, while foreseen is not intended. You're not intending the baby to die, just in a certain sense with the salamagectomy. That's the argument. Number three, the baby's death is not the means by which the mother's disease is treated because you're trying to remove those membranes. And finally, the good of saving the mother's life is proportionate to the bad effect, that is, the death of both mother and child, and no other reasonable alternative is available. So what they do is they offer examples of morally acceptable grounds, morally unacceptable grounds, and controversial grounds. Again, I'm sure doctors and gynecologists and whatnot could better explain this. This is the one that's acceptable grounds, proportionate reasons. Serious intractable maternal illness may be caused by the pregnancy itself, as when a pathology arises from the placenta or infected membranes, which need to be delivered if the mother is to survive. You just can't go in there and remove it. You have to deliver it. it talks about preeclampsia, help, uh, and these other issues. So such a case is usually treated with expectant management. That is, the mother is given antibiotics and steroids and closely monitored to see if it can be treated. If not, Early induction of labor to expel infected membranes may be justified if evidence arises of a significant risk to the mother's life. Again, it's going to have to be the doctor who kind of decides that. And so the intention is we're delivering, we're having labor to expel the membranes that are the cause of the problems. Examples of morally unacceptable grounds. The presence of fetal anomalies does not in itself justify early induction of labor. So you see anencephaly, some cases of trisomy 18, trisomy 13, uh, or even Down syndrome. You can't say, well, the baby has these genetic illnesses, these anomalies, so we want to have early labor. What, what would you be trying to do? You're trying to kill the baby. I mean, in a certain sense, that's what you're, you're directly intending instead of delivering the child. Also, emotional distress of the mother from the pregnancy does not justify the early induction of labor. 
The death of the baby is not a treatment for the mother's emotional distress and cannot be justified. <laughs> and then they're going to give here example of controversial grounds. A woman with a severe heart or pulmonary disease may not be able to tolerate the added stress of increased blood volume from normal placental blood flow during pregnancy. It is unclear whether she may undergo an early induction. Although the placenta causes the increased blood volume in the mother, this is a normal part of pregnancy, not a pathological condition per se, like an infected um, placenta or maybe the issue of preeclampsia. The weaknesses of the mother's heart or lungs is not directly remediated by early induction, so there is significant doubt as to whether the principle of double effect can be validly applied in this case. So these are, of course, things that would have to be decided and discussed, I'm sure, in a hospital with the ethical committee. Um, and, and we can get into that in a bit. I think we're going to be able to, to sort of get to part where we may have enough time to discuss a number of different issues. <clears throat> and the last one, of course, is the one that was first met is dealing with just like a terminal illness of the mother, the cancer of the mother. Everything we've talked about here is the mother's life is in danger. I'm mean, sorry, the child's life is in danger, which would put the mother's life in danger. What about the mother's life, uh, the mother, the child be putting in danger because of a treatment on the mother? What would save the mother here by giving her the chemotherapy, giving her the radiation, which could cause the death of the child. Again, according to ERD 48, I believe it was, or 47, this would be acceptable according to the principle of double effect. But once again, prudence is going to decide a lot of this. Um, what about other issues that maybe y'all could come up with? And I want to land on this final one to be able to bring in a lot of what we'll be discussing when we look at this so-called Phoenix case. What about the issue of, in pregnancy, and this is not necessarily a vital conflict, but the transmission of HIV to the child or some other disease the mother has and the child is pregnant. I mean, the woman's pregnant and the child is going to get this disease. What, what do you all say about that? How would you handle that? That's, that's why we have CRISPR, Father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can edit that out. Well, just the question is like, I mean, this is, not a vital this is not a vital conflict, but we're talking about overall pregnancy issues. So you have a woman who potentially is an addict and will pass on the addiction to the child. You have, I'm, not, I'm not proposing anything. I'm just saying like, hey, these are things that you are going to face. Or the child has HIV because of the mother. You know, I'm, I'm not, this is not actually an ethical decision. This is just something I'm proposing as realities that you face. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of my question too. My understanding in the HIV example is there really is nothing you can do. Yeah. The kid just has HIV and that's it. Correct. So that sucks. It does, yes, it does. But I, I guess I'm trying to make like some of the, most of what we're discussing is vital conflicts. There are other things that are not going to be vital conflicts that are overall pregnancy issues that don't necessarily. I mean, one might argue. Could you see a, a, a secular argument saying, "Well, we don't want that child to have HIV, so let's have an abortion." I'm not saying we would justify that at all, but we can we can understand. Hey, if you're going to value quality of life over dignity of life. Do you think it's quite possible that some hospitals are aborting children with HIV? Yes. The thing I would just continually be attacking as a priest, God willing, is uh, this lie that connects the intent to care for the woman and child with abortion. I mean, it's just that connection is an absolute lie. And so there's so many, like our peripartum and postpartum care in the United States, especially psychological, is terrible. We've got one center in the entire United States to do it. Other countries are researching. We don't even care about caring for the mental health of a pregnant or post-pregnant woman because we don't put money to it. Mm -hmm. So there's this whole culture that is that is opted out of all sorts of treatments and all sorts of techniques and expertises because we've been killing our children. So that's the big thing is that, that whole dichotomy setting up is something that doctors are pushing women into where you should probably kill it. 
and I think that's the key is to create and find to show how that's alive, expose the fact that the connection of the intent to help and killing a child is so much better taken care of by all sorts of other options. Which well, we'll get to. They're playing the game is but, but I think that's the this is this is I guess why I brought that that issue up. Or if you want, like you said, the mental health of the mother, or whatever, you're going to have Catholic women who, of course, are going to say this is ridiculous, regardless of whether or not it's HIV or it's some sort of a genetic anomaly, but are in going to be going to let's say a secular hospital. We're going to say, oh, the child is going to have a terrible quality of life. Why don't you have an abortion? How are you going to argue with that mother who maybe buys that argument? How are you going to face that pastoral situation? You know, my, my parents own a company called Infant Medical Monitoring that deals with infants and small children. Particularly, many of the cases are like that. Like the mother might be low income or just kind of rough or even, even homeless at times. Uh, and they're addicted to drugs and those babies can be born like drug addicted or they have marital disease and they have to go in and section them earlier, they would catch certain things they have. And so well, there's a lot of, um, they give that argument to those mothers all the time. And that there are other alternatives out there, because I know that my parents own one where they can, they can kind of help get those cases. I mean, like they might have problems. With what is the name of your the company again? Infant Medical Monitoring. Okay. Tell me what they do. Yeah, and, and, and I think the thing is you have the abortion mentality. What is the easiest path? And particularly for, hey, look, uh, we're going to talk about it. When, I don't know if you said that, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, how many supposedly Catholic people did, did you meet were pretty disappointed over that? Find out who people really are. Oh, yeah. Now, granted, people often don't understand what that meant and they don't get it. But I was even sort of surprised about people who I thought were pretty pro-life who were upset by this. So we have the pervasiveness of this culture of death that has gotten into the minds of a lot of people. But I, I think one of the things you, you bring up, Joe, is we're going to talk about it more when it comes to neonatal care. And I'll be able to maybe even look up your parents' website and put it onto the notes. Um, that The question of health care for poor Medicaid patients. Basically, you've got maternal hypertension, diabetes, all of these things that make these pre-existing health conditions, which we'll talk about that in social justice, whether or not why these things exist, but you do have it. There's less care because they're going to have to go to UMC or some poor, basically publicly funded hospital you're going to get residents there. You're not going to get the best medical care. Um, and the baby's delivered, and the mom's got to go to ICU. You know, uh, I think in the minds of a lot of people, it might just be easier to either have the C-section or abort the baby. And the question is going to come, when we look at abortion, what are we doing as a state to provide funding to care for those children? And we're going to say we don't want abortion, but what are we going to do to care for the children, and what are we going to do to care for the mothers, too? Uh, Texas is doing a lot. I think Texas allocated $100 million before Roe versus Wade for that kind of care. Louisiana's trying, I think it was $1 million maybe, or $2 million. Granted, we don't, we we don't manage our money as well as the Texans do. <laughs> we can't even pay the street. Yeah. So 
Another, another issue that comes up, which is a bigger social justice issue, is what about a court order forcing a procedure? You know, can a court order force a doctor to have or perform a C-section? Uh, these are going to be all different issues. But I, I want to kind of get to this Phoenix case. Did you all read this? All right. This was the one I remember when this came out and, and hearing about it. And I, I think at the time I didn't fully understand what was going on. It seemed pretty simple to me. But I want to be able to have in the last time we have today a discussion of this because I think it's going to bring up some of the stuff that both Mr. Zeldin and John brought up of this principle of double effect doesn't seem very reasonable or it can be we could be using it to justify certain things and I think there's a deeper argument that that needs to be addressed which we'll see if we can get to so basically this happened at the St. Joseph's Hospital and Medical Center in Phoenix in November of 2009 a 27-year-old pregnant woman was suffering from a very severe pulmonary arterial hypertension with profoundly reduced cardiac output. Basically, her lungs, heart, struggling. Her condition also included the failure of the right side of the patient's heart and cardiogenic shock. Her life was in peril. So let's Disagree this. This is a clearly defined threat to the mother's life. The child was at 11 weeks of development, not viable. If the pregnancy continued, the mother would die. The child would die in any case. So again, you could say, hey, if I could save the mother's life, there would be better one one death rather than two. The case, the care team determined that the placenta itself was the cause of the strain on the mother's heart. To remedy this, a dilation and curatage, I guess I'm pronouncing that correctly, was performed. The stated goal of the procedure was to detach the placenta, thereby reducing the life-threatening strain on the mother. The child died. Soon after these events, the Bishop of Phoenix, I think it was Olmsted at the time, launched an investigation which eventually concluded with the removal of the hospital status as a Catholic institution. So, the question that they begin to address here is, what, was this morally acceptable or not? The ethicists disagreed with three lines of arguing, uh, uh, lines of argument. This was a direct abortion that should have never been performed. This is not a direct abortion because death was an unintended side effect of the removal of the placenta and the child would have died in any case. So this cannot be a case of unjust killing. We see in the arguments surrounding this case, a clear example of how the rival accounts of human action Moral object and direct killing discussed above have real-world implications. So basically, it seems that um, some ethicists that, that Olmsted said to investigate it thought it was good. Others disagreed. And it seemed to focus about what? The precise nature of the placenta. Is it a shared organ of mother and child? a vital organ of the child, or something else. So I, I did a little research on the placenta, and it seems that people are just really beginning to study the placenta and see exactly what it is. So what do you all think of this? With, again, our limited knowledge of all of the details of the case, what you read in here, how would you discuss this or understand this, or what is your understanding of the role of the placenta? What do y'all think? Yes. Well, I was kind of buying the double effect arguments until, like, uh, you know, I, I think it was the Placenta Project. They were saying, like, and, and even the Wikipedia, I look it up here, like, it's, it's formed from the blastocyst, like, from the embryo cells itself. So I think that's a pretty compelling argument, even without all the details, to, like, 
this is a vital organ of, of, the, of the fetus. I mean, like, is it part of its body proper? Uh, that would be a different discussion, but I think it's pretty clearly a vital organ, uh, even though it is shared. Well, it's I've done a little research, but it's it's it kind of works as an organ for the mom too. It's her blood. It's kind of this weird mixed thing. Did anyone see if they found it specifically? Because it has the mom's blood in it. Yeah. Did y'all see, Johnny? You know. Uh, what? Couturage. Couratage. No, no. Couratage. Couratage. Not couturage. Couratage. C U R E T T A G E. Seems like a like a parasite almost in the fact that it is a is an organ of the the child that then taps into the blood supply of the mother. So. But it, did you did does it have exclusively like? Yeah. Well, I think I think the placenta itself, not counting the blood inside of it, would be the child that child's DNA. Yeah. Yeah, the, I, I, that the thing is, is like, can you do like a hysterectomy with a child in there? But you wouldn't. But the argument would be. Once again, not automatically direct. Well, I think it's. Well, I don't think it would be. I don't. I would say it would not be. You wouldn't be doing it to sterilize the woman. You would be doing it to right. save the woman. However, however, though you know, the the organ is not necessarily the sick organ. Now, granted, you could say, Ricardo Pius, you know, if it is a healthy organ. You could remove it. Uh, you know, that's a. I, I probably think it probably wouldn't be the, the optimal way of doing things, but I would imagine you could. But you would know that the child was going to. I mean, clearly, you knew the child was going to die, but you'd save the mom. But here, would the the effect of her being sterile for the rest of her life, you know, really be the best thing to do if you could do the salpingectomy? What other thoughts do y'all have? At least we're, we're, we're this, is, this is similar to if it's if it's the bond that's the problem, it's similar to conjoined twins. And then footnote twenty nine, that's that's something they analyze with this. So there's a parallel with conjoined twins and double click, but I couldn't get to it because you're on Footnote twenty nine in, in the this book right here. Yeah. About conjoined twins doing the same thing. So there's this if conjoined twins are automatically gonna die, you can separate them and one will die. And so it's an interesting question. The status of this placenta, obviously. And it's funny how Nick, well, not funny, it's interesting. Osteoarthritis says the placenta is a part of the child and other people don't, and this is where we are. Very faithful theologians on both sides trying to figure this out. Well, what it seems, though, is the, the I can't remember if it was that article or another one that I didn't have y'all read, or is the other one is we begin to see how some of these theologians are debating on exactly what the object of the act is. And as far, and I know we t- discussed it a little bit last year, and I think I have a little more clarity on it this year uh, of how I would explain it. One of the discussions that we got into is w- how does the intention impact the object? Well, certainly 
we can say it does, but I think the distinction that I kind of failed to make would be that Thomistic distinction, which is in looking at the object of the act as apart from the further intention. I am stealing this money in order to buy drugs. My, my further intention is to buy drugs. But stealing the money, I am having the physical act, which is the exterior act of the will of me taking the $10 that belongs to you. But it's not just the physical act. I have an interior act of the will that is going to an object. I am intending to take money that does not belong to me for that further intention. And so there are basically, if you're gonna, in the simplest version of it, I could be having two or three further intentions, um, you know, but there's the exterior act of the will that Thomas will talk about and an interior act of the will. And so these guys are getting these uh, Moronheimer and whatnot and these distinctions of what exactly is that interior act of the will, regardless of the further act of the will. So here, whenever you're doing the salmonectomy, my further intention is I want to save the mother's life. But in order to save the mother's life, I am doing the physical action of snipping the tube. But what is what am I really choosing in that? I am choosing to remove the fallopian tube. That's the interior act of the will. My further intention is to save the child, which is a great intention. Now, granted, I could have the further intention to want to kill this child. That would change the goodness of the act, but it wouldn't change necessarily what I am choosing to do with that interior act of the will. And if you read those other stuff, I, I forgot which chapter it was in, it can get pretty confusing. And this is where the whole question of what John Paul II meant by the perspective of the acting person. He wants to, uh, to, 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 to solidify the object of the act against proportionalism and against fundamental option. But what happened was is some of these new natural law theorists, the strict Thomas don't like it at all, and I can understand why, begin to shift this understanding of the natural law according to the whole concept of the acting person. What are you intending to do? Therefore, potentially justifying direct abortion because they could say, well, I'm not intending a direct abortion. I'm intending something else. But this means that we have changed our understanding of the object of the act, which is a much further discussion. Anyhow, Things to consider if y'all are around uh, tomorrow and want to continue the discussion. I actually, so this discussion of the placenta is interesting because I spoke to a, um, a midwife or a doula. She's a doula. And one of the things, she gave me some information on how the question of placenta donation. Uh, so we'll talk about that when we come to organ donation of what the placenta is, how does it affect what can it do and can you donate it? So we'll close the glory be before we roll. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. The beginning is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.